Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, better late than never. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Allen. I am Burl Bear, living legend, Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker. Joining us on the phone, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., brilliant award-winning journalist here in the Los Angeles area. He's got so many awards, it's like uh, his wall doesn't have a wall anymore. It's just awards stapled together, holding up the roof. I got to pose some important questions to Frank here in just a minute, a little background. Back in the 1970s, I became involved with the Baha'i Office of Public Affairs and what they had a new division of, uh, had to do with media, uh, radio programs, TV programs, uh, public information stuff, a news service. So I was doing a little digging around on the internet uh, today and I came across a podcast that was written up in the UK from the uh, Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. And what they did was had a podcast called Good Faith, Truth, and Standards in Media. What we can't is, have that, Burrow. What Mark. is the role of journalists in, pro- in promoting understanding and dialogue, especially in a media environment that's often driven by sensationalism? So what they had is they had this guy from the BBC, former uh, head of the BBC uh, News or whatever, and then someone from the Guardian uh, magazine newspaper, to talk about what it's like to be a journalist in these trying times. And uh, Mr. McManus, who's the guy from the BBC, said that many journalists are uncomfortable with the practices in their field that lead to sensationalism news coverage and stress the importance of empathy and preservation of human dignity when reporting. And the lady from The Guardian agreed with them. And then they discussed looking at how biases and false dichotomies can reduce multifaceted issues to simplistic representations of reality that simply reinforce social, political, economic, and religious divides, leading to even more sensationalist news coverage. Things aren't just that black and white, said Mr. McManus. It's actually possible to hold two different points of view in your mind, which are both in ways correct, because we know that human life is infinitely varied and complex. Well, people don't like mm. things that complex, apparently. I'm, I'm sorry, Burl, but you know we, we have to have uh, we have to have the Grand Canyon separating the two the two thought processes. Well, you can't have them together. There's no middle ground. Not allowed. <laughs> well, it has to be divisive. Here's a quote that I want to throw at my friend Frank Gerardo. Quote: People begin their journalistic career with very high ideals, but they eventually find it difficult to write in a way that is in line with their principles. Now, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. is an award-winning journalist with years of experience in print, broadcast, uh, letters to home. Uh, What's your take on this? I know you have very high standards. Oh my God, this is, this, you know, I think about this topic. Hey, hi guys, by the way. Hello there, sir. Nice to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Um, anyway, this you know, this topic is, is really du jour when it comes to journalism. You can't, there's, there is no middle ground anymore. Mark's absolutely right. You have to take sides. 
Um, and if you don't, you don't get the page views. And if you don't get the page views or the likes on Twitter, um, then you don't get the the algorithm to float your page or your story to the top of the feed. Yeah, that's an algorithm thing. Is enough to make you crazy. They find out what you like, and then they only feed you what you already believe. I mean, you know, I know people that, including myself, that spend hours and hours a day on TikTok because it gives you exactly what you want. Yeah. And um, Twitter does it. Reddit does it. Facebook does it to some degree. Um, And so, if you're a journalist working. and you have to use those mediums, you're gonna have to figure out ways to cast your story um, in a way that uh, reflects the reality of the algorithm. And if you don't, then your story doesn't get, doesn't see the light of day, or it doesn't get read by the people that need to read it. Well, that doesn't seem fair. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not fair. I think that, you know, look at, um, well, I mean, there's so many topics you can look at this in the light of, but I mean, just look at homelessness in Los Angeles. It's a super divisive topic. Um, and, the, and it's only really covered in one of two ways. It's either covered from the perspective of people that, like, say, get these people out of here, I can't stand looking at them, or the perspective of people who say, hey, where are they going to go? They've got nowhere to go. You need to do, you know, you need to let them stay where they are. There's never any, like, you know, you don't do stories about what's actually happening, you know, in these homeless camps or how somebody, you know, ends up there and not Mm -hmm. in a shelter or, or even about the actual children of the parents that are living on the street. Right. Because, because, because it doesn't, those stories that in the middle that tell what's actually happening don't play to the biases um, on either side. And they also don't play to the various uh, stakeholders in the topic. Uh, my daughter, for example, who is an excellent uh, journalistic writer in addition to her other talents, spent three years uh, homeless on the streets of Los Angeles, writing and interviewing and copiously documenting. And uh, there were some excellent police officers who dealt with the homeless there. That she was really getting into profiling them and their approach to why they were so good. There was also a couple that were just horrendous, stealing things from the homeless, taking their medications, etc. And she was talking to the, uh, I guess you call it like the precinct sergeant or something, and telling what she was doing. That she was, you know, documenting all this kind of what we call like embedded journalism. And when one of the bad cops, shall we say, found out that she was essentially an embedded journalist, came to her, took all of her notepads, took her iPad, took all of her material that she had stored away, and destroyed it. Fortunately, she'd uploaded all of it to the cloud before he had a chance to do that. But see, stakeholders, he was so afraid that he was going to be outed for being an ass that he took everything she had, thinking he, you know, screwed her good. Frank, this is Mark over the corner here. Um, in in my IT profession, um, a significant portion of your time is spent solving problems, and so there's a there's a lot of research research that research that went in to how to solve problems. There's a number of methods out there. 
Um, but there's a, a little yellow book that you could read in about an hour and a half and laugh through the whole thing called Are Your Lights On? And it's a famous little book by three gentlemen who are pioneering the science of solving problems. And basically, <coughs> human nature forces you, forces people to look at what it is that is their irritant and then requesting that irritant be removed. And it's not fixing the problem. So you can lament that you have two sides of the homeless equation, but they are both acting in that mode. Uh, an example, um, a brand new building went up. It was uh, 26 stories, beautiful. And then within the first week and a half, the complaints started, started to roll in that the elevators took for freaking ever. So the facilities manager called an, uh, an apprentice, you know, an entry-level employee, and says, take care of this for me. The problem from his perspective was he's getting complaints. Not the elevator is slow, but I don't want any more complaints. So this young man, fresh out of school, started to come up with solutions to reduce the complaints. He put couches in the hallways where the elevators were so people could sit and rest. <laughs> he added televisions. And in the course of six months, the complaints still kept coming because it would take a half an hour to go from the 26th floor <laughs> to get home. Uh, so, they, so this young man got a bright idea. We got this huge department store next door. How about we build a bridge from our 10th floor to their 10th floor and then people could take the bridge and go down the department store's <laughs> elevator. And they would like it because they get more foot traffic. And they start getting architects and the plans and they're going to spend the money and it's a year. And here comes the maintenance crew for the elevator. And they go to the panel and find a rat had fried the circuits for one of the elevators. <laughs> and, and they repaired it, and everything was fine. So it, when you look at any, any issue, if you look at any issue, there's the, the gut reaction of people is, what is it to me that is the problem, as opposed to what is the actual problem? If anyone had looked rationally at the elevator being slow, the first thing they should have done is pick up the damn phone and call the elevator company. It's a brand new building. But no. The, the people in the, in the building had to suffer for a year because the facilities manager didn't identify the actual problem. So what is the actual problem with homeless? What's the real problem? It's not that they're, they're overtaking Venice Beach. It's not that, that some of them are uh, drug, drug users, drug dealers, they're, bad, or they're nuts. They're, there's an underlying cause why people are out there not without a home. And it doesn't seem to me that there, anyone is trying to truly address why they're there.
they know why they're there. There's been research on that, but dealing with it is a whole other issue. <laughs> I mean, if, if we could, the thing is, we could spend the next two hours trying to solve it on the video or on the on a podcast here, and we won't. Because the thing is, it's it starts with Nimbyism, right? But it goes right to um, the inability to build affordable housing anywhere in LA. <coughs> um, you, you mentioned. Uh, Burl, that there might be research there. Yeah. But uh, if you were to actually go mm-hmm. into, uh, you know, like the Venice homeless encampment where there's several right. thousand people, right. and you were to just ask them, okay, right. here's a key to uh, a studio apartment, yeah. and it's rent-free for six months, and then you're, you know, you're on your own, how many would actually take it? Quite a few if they could get uh, get work. And I disagree. I, 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 I think most, a good percentage of the people that are homeless want to be. That's another a side of human nature. There it's, is, there is a percentage, but I think that even that has been researched. It's comfortable. Of uh, what percentage of people are homeless I don't as a gimmick? I mean, it doesn't. It's, I can't imagine how difficult it is to be outside when it's you know 105 degrees and you have no air conditioning, or to be outside when it's you know pouring rain and you you know you may have a hole in the roof of your tent, or to be outside when it's you know 32 degrees at night and you don't have enough blankets. It just to me that doesn't sound like something that somebody wants to do. It sounds like something that somebody is forced to do because they either. Um, you know, have uh, an untreated mental illness, an untreated uh, dependency, or um, an inability to, um, you know, make the kind of money that they need to make to pay a rent that's out of control. That seems to be, according to the research I read from, from uh, what, 2019 uh, and 2020, is that the largest number of homeless people entering the homeless market, shall we say, were people whose income level did not keep pace with the rising cost of their apartments. They kept going up and didn't have rent control. Uh, and on, or one major illness without adequate insurance, and there they were. From uh, apartment to car, and then not living in the car, to a tent, etc. But... Uh, I can say these are complex issues. From a journalistic standpoint, you're right. The algorithm is either going to be, look at all that filth, or how do we help these people? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, picked the, I, picked the, I picked the topic that we could you know, dig into for hours. But, you know, the, I mean, when you go back and, and to your original question about, you know, what happens to the person when you enter the, the journalism field and, you know, how do you change... I, I give you a really good example. Pre-internet, I, w- I was working at a at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. It was a newspaper that was located in downtown Los Angeles, and um, I started there as a cotton boy in the late 1980s. And I was working on a Saturday morning when a guy came to the back door and asked to talk to a reporter, and the editor sent me down to talk to the guy. And I go down into the alleyway behind the building, and there's a man who's about six, 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 seven, towering over me, his bald head, 
wearing a, a black overcoat, kind of like something right out of the Matrix. And he had this giant binder. And he was, he was very earnestly telling me that since the 1950s, he's been followed by the FBI and the CIA. Mm-hmm. And he had documented all these occasions when either something happened to him or something happened to somebody in his life that was directly related to the surveillance that was taking place. And he, he, he went on to explain to me that there was this giant conspiracy that involved the government. Um, and it was essentially affecting his life in very profound ways. And he begged me, can you please like, look at this binder and do a news story on it? So I, uh, yeah, I looked at it and it seemed like it was interesting. Then I went into the back of the newspaper and was standing in the press room and I called up to the editor's office. And I said, uh, the editor, named this guy named Chuck, I said, hey, uh, hey Chuck, we got this guy out in the alleyway. He says the FBI's following him. The CIA's been dealing with his life. And uh, he's tired of it. He wants to, you know, have the newspaper write something about it. The judge finally comes into the phone for a second. And my editor said, all right, here's what you do. Go back out in the alleyway and tell the guy you're part of the same conspiracy. Oh, great. <laughs> so, you know, I did that. And, um, I had never seen a guy hustle away faster from trying to get his story sold than I saw that guy. And I realized that, you know, I'd gotten into the, the business because I, I, you know, all the president's men and this idea that, you know, you could be a Don Quixote sort of figure and, you know, change the world. And really, it's not that at all. I mean, a lot of times what you do, even in big city journalism, is just stenography. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the Washington Post, it's really nothing more than a mouthpiece for government in the same way that, you know, the Nashville, Tennessee is a mouthpiece for the, you know, the local uh, scene in Nashville. You know, it's interesting you mentioned all the president's men. Uh, we had Nick Bryant. Uh, he has a book coming out uh, next year. It's essentially everything you think you know about Watergate is wrong. And the Woodward and Bernstein's uh, journalistic approach was haphazard, incorrect, and full of a lot of BS. And that he was not the only journalist who knows that. And that a lot of people just other journalists who knew better just didn't say anything because well kind of like uh, the uh, uh, what was it the uh, uh, the when the North Vietnamese supposedly attacked the ships and the they got us in the Vietnam War and it turns out the that, yeah, and it never happened and uh, Johnson President Johnson later said oh it could have been dolphins out there for all we know but the journalists who knew it wasn't true didn't dare say anything because they'd be called unpatriotic. <laughs> what do you know? What do you do? And I guess what I'm suggesting, Burrow, is that when you get up into that echelon of, of journalism, it stops becoming journalism. It's becoming the you know the the state 
Yeah. Because, like, you know, I mean, even if you don't think you are, you are. If the White House puts out a press release and you're the reporter for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the, the Daily Guardian, you got to write about that press release, right? Right. You, so what do you do if you're not, if not you know, acting as the government's mouthpiece? This, this is, and, and then when you take that on Twitter or, you know, back to social media and, you know, write out the headlines from your story, President says this, you no longer there's no longer critical filters involved that you think the journalism applies to things. You're simply doing stenography. Yeah. It's the same thing when you're working at the local newspaper and the police department calls up and says, you know, they're looking for a suspect. You know, you you take that and you print it. You put the guy's picture in the paper without ever asking, like, well, what's he suspected of? Why is he the suspect? How come you're not looking for other people? You've become a, a, a function of government, even even though you know we specify in our constitution that there is a free press. The, the press is uh, unable to function or to be valuable unless it is, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of government at any level. Well, that was the whole thing of why the the press was of the free press was so important. Is that it could call BS on uh, what was going on. <laughs> But if it stops doing that, you know, uh, then you got some problems. Uh, I just had the uh, uh, one uh, example come to mind, which just left my mind, so I won't bother to bring that one up. <laughs> that does happen when we get senile, such as I am rapidly becoming every hour I do this show. <laughs> but uh, uh, it is. Uh, oh, I know. It was. Well, I had this prosecutor on the program, and he was watching Nancy Grace. And Nancy Grace says, "And then the evidence they found in the car." He goes, "What evidence? What car? <laughs> it's my case. I'm the prosecutor. I would know if there was evidence in a car, but there wasn't. But it sure made for good television." Well, I mean, she's she's a she's a pro at that. At that, yes, at that. It, it, yeah, it, it would be really interesting to find out, you know, what really motivates her to be as uh, a pe- I don't know, um, a pe- oh, pedantic. That's a yeah, good word. pedantic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great word. Did you was see any of the coverage of? Um, uh, what's his name, Alex Jones, or whatever the, the quackpot is, was talking about the Sandy Hook thing, and mm-hmm. you know, it'd be, I didn't realize that guy was making so many millions of dollars off of that crap. But boy, he sure was. And the only thing he was eight hundred thousand dollars a day. And he, what he was upset about is, this has caused him so much trouble ever since he was convicted of telling these horrible lies. <laughs> Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that like I don't whatever that fine was, it was less than two months' uh, pay or income that that he gets from his you know crazy um, stuff, and, and he and he fundraised off the off the trial. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and people look at him as being so. This is back to the whole journalism thing. It, people look to him as being like some standard of um, truth telling or representing some standard of truth telling that they believe 
you know, journalism should hold itself to. But here's a great example. In, in his case, uh, he says what he needs to say to make the money that he needs to support his lifestyle. Yeah. Make it up as you go along. I mean, the Sandy Hook, the stuff that he said about those Sandy Hook victims is so foul and so wrong um, that, uh, it, 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 you know, it, court, it cries out for the kind of justice that ultimately was served on him. But uh, it, the fact that there's people out there who trust a voice like that leads you to believe that um, you, you can't do journalism uh, you know, in a way that's fair anymore. You can only do it in a way that panders to the circuit. Well, that's really tragic. Uh, when I was learning this trade or craft or art, whatever you want to call it, that you and I are both involved in, there was a like a code of ethics, kind of like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, our standard, our list of principles. <laughs> you know? Our newspaper will do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. Uh, there's ethics that we, we swore we would uphold in journalistic ethics. And I took those things very seriously. Uh, which is one reason I, I loved research, like digging into what was real, what are the facts, you know, what actually transpired, not what someone said they thought they said someone said, but what was real. Yeah, I mean, I, so, Bill, those, those, those aspects still exist. The uh, Society of Professional Journalists has a very, you know, deep and uh, meaningful code of ethics. But here's, here's the question you got to ask yourself. You know, if you're if you're a journalist, do I want to make you know thirty five thousand dollars a year following a code of ethics, or do I want to you know support my family, uh, you know, not live in my car and have the standard of living that um, you know my neighbors have, and maybe you know live outside that code of ethics. And I think that's what people are confronted. I think many, many journalists who aren't in management are confronted with that problem. And you know, it's insidious. I covered a story one time where a, a woman who was on a soap opera, uh, a young woman, was murdered by her husband, you know, in, in some sort of a domestic violence dispute. Mm -hmm. And you know, you go out to the, you go out to the, the, the crime scene and talk to people. In this case, I talked to the woman's mother and she gave me a photo uh, of the woman and we published it in the paper. And then, the, and, you know, the next day, it's in the 90s, I got a call from the National Enquirer wanting to, you know, me to essentially steal the photo and sell it to them for $600. And then... And, well, I mean, you know, I didn't sell it, but it sure was very tempting. I, you know, I mean, I I think that same month I had difficulty paying my, my electricity bill. Yeah. And that extra money would have been, you know, a welcome way to pay the, pay the electricity bill and put a little bit of money in the bank. Yeah, um, but it's like uh, John Lennon said, how do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the issue, right? Well, it is for me. 
you know, I mean, uh, I I gotta wake up to me every morning. Oh jeez, <laughs> that's I, a scary thought. That's a scary thought. I gotta look at myself in the mirror when I try to shave. How many? How many of those mirrors have cracked so far? Uh, a lot of them. <laughs> Shatter in the shattered the mirrors. Yeah, shattered lives. Shattered they 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 okay, run here's down a, the. Here's oh, one. Scared. There was this case where a woman's child, young child, has died. And she says that the child was taken by some bizarre pedophile person. And the cops have, you know, like a pedophile registry, child molesters live near you. So they pick one, they focus on him, and boy, they're pretty sure they got him. And they have him under surveillance, right? And they they convict him, and he said he's still he's in prison. So I'm reading over all the materials very, very carefully, and I noticed something. So I went to the lead detective one day, and I said, I got a little statement for you here. It says here that you had this man under 24-hour surveillance from this date to the, up till when you went to trial. Now, it also says in this report that the perpetrator moved the body from this location to this other location on such and such a date. If this was the fellow that did it, you would have watched him do it. Dead silence. And he just looked out at the floor and said, well, we closed the case. In other words, he knew damn well the guy was innocent. So I went to the medical examiner trying to get the report on what, how the kid died. Turns out, confidentially, the child's death was consistent with the mother trying to stop the child from crying by putting her hand over the kid's mouth and dozing accidentally suffocated her own child and rather than deal with that, cooked up this BS story. And somebody is in prison. Someone is in prison for life. Because for somebody needed to get a quota. That's, I mean, that's, hopefully that, that guy gets justice on That's terrible. That's awful. That's awful. So I've talked about, this is the second time I've told the story, not on this show, but I told it on Dan Zapansky's show. And everyone goes, my God, that's horrible. Well, yeah, it's horrible. Some innocent guy's in prison for life for a crime that never happened. <laughs> you know. And then on the other hand, you get somebody like Angie Rodriguez, who we wrote about, you know, in a tasteful murder, who, uh, you know, thought she got away with it and blamed a large corporation for killing her daughter. It yeah. turns out, first, you know, she did it because she wanted to be insurance money. Boy, I'll tell you, she's a piece of work. Uh, we wrote a book about, uh, Frank and I wrote this book about Angelina Rodriguez. I mean, one, I mean, you got to look at her, be sympathetic towards that woman because of her absolutely horrific violations of her life and everything in childhood up through high school. But once you reach a point of maturity, you'd think that someone could make some choices that didn't involve cold-blooded murder and delight at the murder of her be- thinking her best friend had been murdered. Joy! Well, you know, Burl, this goes back to my point about human nature and problems. Your microphone keeps cutting out there. They, uh, um, the, the bottom line is that individuals will see the problem from their perspective and not from uh, 
not from what the root of the problem really is. And so all they see is the superficial. If this individual is no longer alive, my problem goes away. Yeah, that's how she saw it. Oh, this is great news. My best friend's been murdered. How wonderful. There's actually video of that, of the real person having that reaction. We saw that video, and we both... (laughs) Jaws about hit the floor. I couldn't believe that. I'd never seen that type of reaction hmm. to someone's death. I mean, it was just like, God, I couldn't believe it. Uh, well, well, as we're winding down our hour, you, uh, Frank and Burrow are going to be doing a oxygen special. Yeah. Uh, Why don't you tell us about that, Mr. Burrow Bear? Well, our good friend uh, Matthew Watts, who uh, did the great uh, Epic Mysteries episode based on our, our book, A Taste for Murder, about Angelina Rodriguez. Uh, Ian. Has a new series on oxygen called Accident, Suicide, or Murder. Take your pick. Door number one, door number two, door number three. Well, the murder was an accidental suicide. <laughs> yes, that's... <laughs> yeah, there's been a few of those. Like the when uh, Susan Murphy Milano investigated in Oklahoma where the guy was shot, two different caliber bullets in his head. He said, well, the first time it didn't succeed, so he went and got a different gun to shoot himself the second time. No. Oh, well, didn't you, didn't you have a case where someone was stabbed? Seven times? Yeah, and it was suicide? Yeah. Well, what's her name? Uh, oh, uh, Manley Williams attacked her husband 97 times with a samurai sword. And claimed that he committed suicide. Yeah, and then sat down and wrote him a big suicide note. It was hard for him to hold the pen after his fingers were cut off, though. Actually, actually wrote the fake suicide note and posted it on Facebook. Really? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> She's you know, got a lot of nerve. No one, uh, no one ever said these people are mental giants. No, that bothers me, too. Like with uh, uh, Rhonda Glover who had been in and out of mental institutions for years, when they charged her with the the, the murder of her boyfriend, they said, you can't talk about the clones and the sex with clones in the cave under your house with George Bush, uh, because that's too dangerous. So, no mention of her being batshit crazy. And, uh, And she didn't want people to think she was crazy either, so she just went along with it. No, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> you know, because she's certainly not getting any mental health meds in uh, Texas prison. <laughs> no, I, I mean, Angelina, uh, that we started talking about here, uh, is, I, I think it's usually a case called accident, murder, or suicide. And she tried to make it look as though her husband died as well of natural cause. Right. Which is neither accident, nor suicide, nor murder. And, oh, yeah, uh, he just did. Uh, yeah. And there isn't a test for antifreeze. You know, when someone dies, they don't check to see if you were poisoned with antifreeze. I thought what was so oh, interesting is that when she calls the medical examiner, she wants a death certificate so she can get the insurance money. They say we can't find a cause of death. What do you mean? He's too healthy to be dead. He's in absolutely perfect health, except for the fact he's dead. And we can't find a cause of death. Well, Jeeb, do you think maybe someone poisoned him by putting antifreeze in his gatorade? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, that would have damaged his stomach, so he wouldn't have been perfect. You can't, you can't believe how 
stupid she is until she opens her mouth. <laughs> yes, that's true. What's that old saying? You know, it's one thing to be stupid. It's another to open your mouth and prove it. Yeah. <laughs> and she thought she had outsmarted the cops and everything. I, I think the best part about that, like, thinking that she outsmarted the cops, is that they convinced her that she's a key part of their investigative team. Yeah. And they would give her a badge. Yeah. And, and you know, the, like, her insights into the investigation and, you know, her thoughts about a key suspect play a very important role in, um, in their trapping her. Um, yeah, up to the point where she sends a fax to the police oh, from a fax machine where they've got video of her in the store with a fax machine. Like she says, this is right at the top, CVS on such and such street. <laughs> yeah. And the cover letter. Yeah. And the cover letter, yeah. Cover page. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, if things broke a different way, like if you go back, and look at how she got away with killing her daughter. Um, That's so sick. Killing her own daughter, little baby daughter for the insurance money. It's, it's really sick, and she got away with it. And, you know, she almost blew up the house to kill her husband. And had that gone the way that she wanted it to go, she would have cashed insurance checks on the house and on Frank. Yeah. But, you know, but then, okay, then she, then she does actually succeed in poisoning him, and he dies. And if she just keeps him off for a while, she might cash an insurance check. But she's so greedy that she needs to involve herself in the investigation, raising the hackles and the, the suspicions of the investigators. If she would have um, just kept her mouth shut for 18 months, she would have got away with it. But, uh, yeah, and then part two, now that she's in prison, is she, you know, there's, knowing the way that the criminal justice system works, even if everybody does testify against you, there's sometimes there's a likelihood you might get away with it. But she goes and pisses off the one witness <laughs> by trying to kill the witness. Yes. That backfires on her. It's, 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 she, she's a, uh, a comedy of errors. And yes, Pearl, I think you're right. You know, we have to have some empathy for, you know, the young Angelina being molested by her grandfather and, um, you know, God knows what she was exposed to. But at some point in adult life, you, you, many people have, I'm sure, have been in her situation and didn't resort to murder. Yes, um, it doesn't occur to most people to do that. And she only married yeah. him to kill him. That was the only reason she married him, was to kill him. Yeah. Yep. That was uh, her plan from the get-go. And you know what's great, Mark? What's great about this book is that Bill and I wrote this uh, more than six years ago, and it's still one of the most popular true crime books uh, out there. Um, on the on the market today, people read this book and they are looking at true evil in a way that they probably haven't seen since the Charles Manson stuff. And yet, it's, it's 
the style is written in, which I really I credit a lot to, to Frank on this, because he went, went along with my theory, and that is a lot of true crime books that uh, I've written, you had to make them 100,000 words, and you had to be just, you know, Joe Friday, you know, just the facts, ma'am. We thought, let's just make however many words it takes to tell the story, and let's just tell the story like we're telling it to you over a cup of coffee, you know, where we're sitting in a bar with you or something, you know, just sitting here telling it to you. And, uh, boy, that really made a difference. Uh, a lot of people, their reviews said they really liked the way we told the story. Some people did. The people said, boy, they seem awful flip sometimes. They just look like Jabba the Hutt now. <laughs> well, I mean, I hate reviews. Reviews suck. It, it, I, I went out and bought a, a cooler today, and I, I was at the at the store looking at this cooler, and I thought, oh, let me look at the reviews for it. So I go on one website that's got one star, and the two reviews are like the most negative shit you've ever read. Well, glad I didn't read. I go on another go on another website, and there's seven thousand reviews, and they're all four and five stars. Yep. So I mean. I, I mean, obviously, I'm going to go with the 7,000 reviews over the two that are super negative. But the the two that are super negative are part of a trend of trolls on the internet who just like to go and say negative stuff because it knocks somebody else down. My favorite is is when the troll starts listing things that are wrong and they're not part of the work. Yes, uh, I said that one of, one of those trolls said, "There's too much talk about ballistics. Nothing but ballistics." The person was killed with a knife. There's nothing about ballistics in the entire book. Yeah, but also another one where you can tell is if they give it one star. Most people will never take the time to write an honest review of a book that that they only would give one star to. They'll write to recommend a book they really liked or one they kind of liked or maybe kind of weren't so sure about, but they're not going to go through a lot of trouble to write a one-star review. So that's the first tip-off. The second one is, it begins, I don't usually write reviews, but I had to write a negative review of this book. <laughs> and then you look to see what other reviews they've written, and those are the only kind they've ever written. They all start the same. Every review starts the same way. I, I have a friend who's a restaurant critic, uh, you know, like gets paid to do restaurant criticism, and he he has this thing where he on Yelp, where he says, "I look at a restaurant on Yelp, and I read through the reviews, but I throw out all the five stars and all the one stars, mm-hmm. because the only way you'll ever get a really true idea of what the value of something is is if you look at those." You know, two, threes, and fours, right? Right. But because the five stars, probably the restaurant owner, the waiters, his friends, their friends. And the one stars, you know, it's the, it's the Karen that came in and didn't get served in 23 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's true. I was also given great advice by Michaela Hamilton, executive editor at uh, Kensington Publishing, the Pinnacle True Crime series that I wrote for for many years. She says, don't read your reviews on Amazon. I said, why is that? She says, you write books for people who like your books, not for people who don't. And the ones you're going to remember are the jerks that write these negative reviews, and that's what's going to screw you up. And it did. Because I started to worry about, oh, that jerk who wrote this too much about the trial in this book and the blah, blah, blah. 
and that it affected me in writing Fatal Beauty. And so she had to talk to me. She said, you're drowning in this manuscript, aren't you? I said, yeah. She says, that's because you read your damn reviews. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's, I did. That's great advice. She's right. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you, you, know, we, you and I both want to be very accurate. And we want to see the stuff that's not necessarily right there on the surface to see. But you can see it if you look past the stuff that's right in front of you. And uh, that's why I've always loved doing the research. And uh, why I'm happy I found you. Because you got the connections down here that I don't have. When I was up in the Northwest, I knew all the people. You know, and I could get stuff, get to people. Fortunately, you can do that down here. They all know you. <laughs> oh yeah, hey, it's Frank. Hey, Frank, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, they're all retiring and dying, girl. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> including me. <laughs> Though I can't retire, what else am I gonna do? So all I do is write books. Well, yeah, you you thoroughly annoy us. Yeah, I do. I'm a social irritant by profession yeah. or hobby. And uh, <laughs> and baby. fabulous at it. Hey, I got to tell you, I got to pay another compliment to you. Uh, I was reading the uh, analytics of uh, this true crime podcast we're doing right now. Uh, one of the most popular episodes in the uh, 15 years we've been doing this. And your episode on Burned is one of the top Episodes. Wow. Uh, the other ones, of course, are Kevin Sullivan's Ted Bundy episodes. Right. Everyone, everyone enjoys a cannibalistic yeah. nut job. Yeah. And uh, the one, the one that blew my mind that's always in the top ten to fifteen is Dennis Kelly, uh, a heart blown open. The interview with the Jumpo Dennis Kelly, who was kind of a, a Timothy Leary uh, accolade. Uh, into LSD and all that stuff and then became a, an advocate of a whole new dimension of Zen Buddhism and he must be incredibly popular because boy that show uh, was back from uh, you know t- 10 years ago is still one of the most downloaded episodes he must wow have, and you know what's interesting about that because I've listened to it again is for the first half hour or so of the show he doesn't get the show he, he doesn't get the vibe of what it was Don Waldman and I were doing the show then and then at about 35 minutes in he gets it and all of a sudden yeah, about, isn't that the typical time it takes for a, like a tab of window for him to take a fact about 35 minutes yeah <laughs> and all of a sudden he gets the vibe of the program and his entire presentation changes and he becomes vastly humorous and entertaining for the rest of the show. Oh, so what is the what's the name of the book you're going to be talking about on uh, own network? Taste for Murder. Taste for Murder. Is a fabulous book. Uh, spend lots of money on it so that they stop hitting me up for cash. Yes, right. We need to make more money. And, uh, more money. Frank, uh, uh, looking forward to saying hello one day. Thanks for coming. I, I, I want to come back and be in the uh, in the boat over there with you guys. Well, yeah. you're welcome. Yeah, we'll get you in here and grill you like a swordfish. Bro! <laughs> yeah! What's next? Magic Man Allen of the Demons of Decadence. Live from the Light of the Blouse. And
sinful. 